0: That was a no, huh? (laughs) Uh, Look, just a bit of an update. They're happily married, just not to each other. And, uh, you know, had he had known with certainty that that would have been the outcome, he never would have done it in a million years. And if there's any young men out there today who are thinking of doing this, just my one piece of advice is don't. Okay. (laughs) Don't. Wow. Certainty. If we knew for certain what the future would bring, we would change the way we would live today. Back in 1960, a long time ago, a year before I was born, uh, my father was approached by a friend. My father was a pharmacist. Uh, he owned a couple of pharmacies. And, you know, we were probably pretty well off. We weren't rich, but we were probably better off than a lot of people. And so there was probably some extra money and stuff like that. So, A friend of my father's approached him and said, look, there's this guy who's going to publicly list a company. And uh, I I don't know if he knew him or there was some association. He said, look, I think it'd be a fantastic investment. And if you could put in $1,000, which then was 500 pounds, he said, I think it'd be just this great investment. And my dad thought about it a whole lot. And uh, I think he was kind of interested and yet because he had a young family and responsibilities, he decided not to. He didn't know for certain that if he put in $1,000, which then was actually a really quite a lot of money, much more than it is now, he wasn't certain that he'd be using it wisely. So he chose not to. Now, the company is uh, actually known as Westfield Holdings, owned by Frank Lowy. And if he would put $1,000 in in 1960... By 2011, that shareholding would be worth $242 million. Now, that's uh, 2011. The share price is nearly double. That would be worth half a billion dollars. Now, can you imagine what would happen if I had half a billion dollars? I'd be wearing a $900 pair of socks. Um, You know, I'd have a, you know... Uh, Philippe, what are they, uh, Patek Philippe, watch worth quarter of a million dollars. And... But my father, he didn't do the wrong thing. He just didn't have certainty. So he chose not to invest the money. And nobody knew back in 1960 for sure how it was going to go. But I think you'd agree with me. If you knew for sure that that shareholding was going to be worth $242 million dollars, you wouldn't put a 1,000 in, you'd put 10,000 in, wouldn't you? If you knew the future, it would change what you and I did in the present, would do in the present. Now, Luke's Gospel talks about certainty. And in fact, the whole reason that Luke wrote his Gospel, moved by the Holy Spirit, was so that people like you and me would have certainty. Certainty about the past, the present, and the future, so that we could make choices based on that certainty. And by having that certainty, our choices would be different. This is what Luke actually wrote in uh, chapter 1, verse 4 of his gospel. He says, I've written it so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That's why Luke's gospel was written, so people like you and me could be absolutely clear about who Jesus is, why he came to earth, why he taught, why he died on a cross, what that death meant, about the resurrection, and about the future. And you know something Being certain about who Jesus is, why he died on the cross, the fact that he rose from the dead, the fact that he's coming back, the fact that there is a place in heaven for us, makes all the difference in life. And if you're not so certain about that, that makes a very big difference too. Look at what Luke says in verse 1. He actually says many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke's gospel wasn't the first uh, thing that was actually written. In fact, we think James was the first part of the New Testament. But even before James was written, the people who were around at the time of Jesus before, during and after had written down things. They were talking about things. This was extraordinary what had happened in their midst But the thing that they were most excited about was what had been fulfilled. Now, we all know what the word fulfillment means. It's basically when you ask for something or say something at one point. For instance, if you were to um, order something on eBay, who's ordered on eBay here? Who's been ripped off? Who's ordered on eBay? Well, if you order something on eBay... And at some point, point you pay with PayPal, and at some point it ends up in your home, it's because the order or the request has been fulfilled. Something was promised, something was agreed, and the fulfillment of that is it arriving at your door. Now, throughout the um, Old Testament, there are all of these promises of God, particularly relating to the person of Jesus, particularly about his coming and what it would mean and how it would change the world. And Luke wants us to understand that everything that God promised, everything specifically has been fulfilled in exactly the way God said it would be. Now, when I go to eBay, for instance, the first thing that I look at when I go to eBay is I look at the seller and i look at the feedback and i want to see if there's a really high rating from this guy or gal because i want to see if there's somebody who regularly fulfills their orders and i'm not going to buy from somebody who they're all of this feedback this guy never does the honest thing he's always selling junk we say, you know what i'm saying god is someone who comes out with the top rating what he said he would do he does When Jesus had risen from the dead, part of the promise, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he came and met with his disciples. This is what he said on one of those occasions in Luke 24, 44 to 47, towards the end of the gospel. He, Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day, and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. He's standing in front of them. And he's saying all of these things were written and promised and have a look at me. I came, I died, I've solved the problem of sin and I've risen from the dead and I'm going back to heaven and you can come and join me. Though for the moment, this is what I want you to do. Now, the more you are sure, the more certainty you have about everything that God has said, that will change the way that you and I live. Because it makes all the difference. Because it means that if that is the truth, then all of the other competing values and ideas and teachings about the world aren't true. And a lot of them are just lies. Lies. And that if everything God has said is true and everything he says comes to pass and if he can take everything and put it back together, then you and I need to stop and think, wow, that's the path I need to be going down. That's the guy I need to give my allegiance to. That's the one I need to trust. That's the one I need to listen to. And when I'm thinking about what does my life mean and what should I be doing with my life, the only question that is ever worth asking is, God, what do you want me to do? Because all other questions, to be quite honest, are totally secondary to that question. Because if you are clear about what God wants you to do, then the only other thing you need to do is go and do it. Everything doesn't matter apart from that. It doesn't matter what the TV says or the magazines or your friends and all that kind of stuff. Because they didn't make promises 600 years before the time of Jesus. They didn't explain these things. They didn't, in a sense, have a clue about solving the problem of sin and putting a relationship with each of us back with God. They don't know that stuff. They're actually ignorant. But not this. Not this at all. Luke actually says this when we go to verse 2. He says this referring to these things. That's the fulfilled promises of God. He said that... um, He's written them down just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He didn't sit down and kind of just make this up. He didn't read it on the back of some magazine. He went and investigated. He was moved by the Holy Spirit. And a lot of us aren't necessarily aware of how many witnesses there were to not only Jesus' life and death, but to his resurrection. Some people think, well, you know, maybe it was um, 11 or 12 people. Maybe it was 20. Maybe it was 30. Do you know how many people, minimum, saw Jesus once he'd risen from the dead? Look at what Paul wrote um, in First Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 6. "'For what I, Paul, received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, fulfillment, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I'm not really sure what the size of Jerusalem was at the time of Jesus. I know at the time of Passover, like basically something like a million people came into town. It was phenomenal. But 500 witnesses. It's extraordinary. If you go to court and you're accused of something and a handful of witnesses say, he didn't do it. He was with me. That's the guy that did it. You don't need 500. You don't need a handful. 500 is like witnesses on steroids. It is. And this is how many people saw Jesus. It wasn't just his friends. There's that incredible uh, uh, situation actually just before that reading I did um, from Luke <clears throat> 24, where these two guys, one of them we know his name is Cleopas, the other one, he's a no name. I'm sure he's got a name, it's just never mentioned in Scripture. You know, they're walking away from Jerusalem, they're really sad because Jesus has died, and they think the whole thing is over. Maybe God isn't going to fulfill anything, maybe it was a mistake. And they're walking down the road and all of a sudden this guy turns up and they're talking to him and they they don't know who he is at first. And it's Jesus. And he explains the whole Bible to them. They didn't even have to pay any university fees. They got it for free. He explained everything. And their despair was turned to joy. Because they realized at that point that life did not have to be lived the way they had lived it. It could be put back together and made wonderful. And not only the life they were living, they realized at that point that everything that Jesus said was true. And this whole eternal life gig was there. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to spend eternity in heaven with Him. No more assignments, no more problems no more brokenness, no more tears, no more death, the old order of things will have passed away because God fulfills his promises. And Luke wants us to be certain about this. And so when you get up tomorrow morning and you wake up and you go, it's Monday, then you go, oh, it's a public holiday. That's fantastic. (laughs) So let's think about Tuesday maybe. Because you're not going to be depressed tomorrow because it's a public holiday. But Tuesday, maybe you will. You'll wake up and think, oh no, it's Tuesday. But then all of a sudden, because of Jesus, you can say, this is the first day of my new life. I'm one step closer to heaven and eternity. What a privileged person you are to know these incredible truths and to be certain about them and to watch the TV and hear all of the terrible news and see all of these awful things and to know there is hope. And it doesn't have to be the way everyone else thinks it is. You're going to be different. You're going to make different choices. You're going to have different attitude towards your life, towards your money. You don't have to be selfish anymore. Well... (laughs) I'm working on mine. My wife says I've got a way to go, but, you know, she she may not understand things. But the the reality is everything can be radically different if you are certain about these things. And look at what Paul said. Not Paul, um, Luke actually said. He goes on to say in verse 3 that he himself has carefully investigated everything from the beginning And I too, like other people, but lit by the Holy Spirit, have decided to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent, Theophilus. It's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Anybody feel like changing their name to Theophilus? Probably not. Do you know who Theophilus is? No, you don't. None of us do. I don't know who he is he's somebody who Luke particularly wanted to encourage but this is what I do know I know what his name actually means and it means a lover of God so I'm looking at a whole room full of Theophiluses aren't I this is written to us And if you're not there yet, we're going to encourage you so you get across the line and you're a lover of God too. But that's the deal. He's written it for a guy called Theophilus and he's written it for all of us. And he's examined everything carefully. And this guy, Luke, who has spent time in ministry with Paul. He's written it specifically, we're told, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught I want to show you a a picture up there. We can put that picture on the screen, yeah. Okay. Um, That's actually a picture of a bathroom. Um, You probably know what one of those is. Um, But this is an unusual bathroom because uh, about a month ago, my son was down here. He really likes Indian food. Oh, boy. You know, we thought he'd marry an Indian girl. It's not going that way, but, you know, there's still time, okay? He loves Indian food, and, and so do I. And so we went down to this Indian restaurant in, um, in uh, Hobart. And I won't say which one it was, but the food was fantastic. But because we'd been walking all around town, he sat down and I said, look, I'm just going to go straight to the bathroom. And I walked in there. It's not my habit to take photographs of bathrooms in restaurants. Um, we all have strange little hobbies. That's not mine. But I did. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. I'm telling you. But on this occasion, I chose to because I have never been into a restaurant where there's a shower before. I thought, how courteous of them. What a wonderful thing to have in the bathroom. And then it dawned on me, it's an Indian restaurant, and the food can get really, really hot. Here I'm going with this. And so I thought I would redesign their menu. Can we see the next slide? See, normally when they want to actually give an idea of how hot the food is, they put chilies next to it. I think, no, no. From now on, we're going to have shower heads. So, all of a sudden, you have merg... I don't even know if I'm pronouncing these correctly. Merg akbari. Two shower heads. It's got a bit of a bite, but not too much. You've basically got your merg shahi korma. It's pretty weak. So, a shower head, maybe just a washer, okay? We're not really sure. It's not too... No, it's not too bad. But when we get down to the merg chili, and look what they have in brackets. Not for the faint-hearted, Okay? five showers. (laughs) You order that. They recommend five showers. You pay a dollar for a shower. They give you a token. You have a few bites. You go in there. You get your head wet with cold water. You come back out for another go. That's how it works. So that's my new rating system for how hot food actually is. And the reason they have a rating system in restaurants, especially with hot food, is so that if you don't like the food too hot, you can say, I won't have that. I'll actually have this. But let me ask you the question tonight. How would you rate yourself when it comes to certainty about the things of Jesus, about him fulfilling the promises of God? Would you be maybe a a, a one-shower or a washer? Okay, maybe just a sprinkle on the face, a little bit. Or would you be a five-shower person? And here's what I want to say to you, and here's what Luke wants to say to you. He wants to say to you that if you don't feel that certain, he's written a gospel all about Jesus so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. That's why it's written. And I want to encourage you. We, we really say to people, Take one of these, it's a daily hope thing. I think they're over at Hope Central. I don't know, I think they're on the seats tonight. But we encourage you to spend at least 20 minutes a day with your head inside God's word for the simple reason, not that God will think, oh, well, how impressive are you and all that sort of stuff. God sees through our little games, by the way, we know that. But so that we may benefit from certainty. Because the more you put your head in and read through Luke's gospel or certainly any other part of the bible you are going to be encouraged and you're going to feel more certain and you are going to believe and you are going to live and act differently and isn't that great i encourage you to your 20 minutes in the chair or more not only that pray but that will give you greater certainty and that will help you to live the life that God wants all of us to live. Will you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you're a God who has um, interacted with us and come down to earth in the person of Jesus to change the world, to change the way and the lives we live. And we thank you so much, Lord, that if we're in doubt... You've given us an instruction manual about history, about the present, about future, about you, about us, about how we're meant to live. And Lord, help us to be more certain so that we can live those intentional lives. We can have more freedom, less fear, more um, incredible joy in the knowledge that when you promise things, you follow through. And we praise you for all these things in your name, Jesus.